Anonymous Eskimo, Episode 8. Maksaktan. Welcome to the Anonymous Eskimo Recovery Podcast, where my guests share their stories of recovery and hope for people still struggling with alcohol and drug addiction. I'm your host, Ralph Sara, and on today's episode, we have a special guest here to share his recovery journey, Raymond Snow. Raymond, thank you so much for being my guest on the Anonymous Eskimo Recovery Podcast. Thank you. Uh, Glad to be here. Glad to be of service. Glad to be a guest. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. Um, so our listeners can get to know a little about you. Can you go ahead and please tell us about yourself? Uh, my name is Raymond. I have a sobriety date of January 2nd, 2015. Uh, born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. Lived up here most all my life. I uh, moved down to California when I was in grade school, came back up uh few years later, my grandfather got sick and been here ever since. I have uh, three beautiful kids. They're older now. And um, I'm a single parent, single dad, raised them on my own 100%. And um, it's not an easy job, but, you know, I'm there for them. Wow. So Raymond, can you tell everybody what things look like before you got sober? Oh, man. Um before I got sober and in recovery, it was dark. It was really dark. And um, I didn't think there was a way out. I remember um, when I first started that um, it started off pretty fun. And, you know, going to parties, hanging out with the guys. Eventually, from just drinking on the weekends, it turned to drinking every day. And then from drinking every day, it turned into morning drinking. And then thus started the vicious cycle of um, my alcoholism. Well, I know growing up, um, growing up when I moved back from California, I, um, uh, my uncle, he, uh, introduced me to my first drink. But when I was growing up as a child, you know, my, I grew up with my mom, uh, she was a single parent and I grew up with my, um, my uncle's aunts. I had six uncles and three aunts and then my mom, she's the youngest of 10. And, um, my grandfather used to always have card parties and he owned a record store and the record store. Not only did he sell records, CDs, tapes, he also sold uh, paraphernalia, um, baggies, weed pipes. I mean, you name it, anything to use the drugs, but not the drugs themselves. Mm. So with uncles and aunts, you know, some of my uncles liked to party. Some of my aunts liked to party. Uh, my granddad had card parties and I'd see them drinking and smoking weed and all that. And I think to myself, I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to grow up to be like that. Things would get loud, but they wouldn't get violent or messy or fights or anything. But 
to me it was annoying and sometimes obnoxious. So as a child, I saw that and I, I made a pledge to myself that, you know, that wouldn't be me. I'm not going to do that. And um, so I, we moved down to California when I was uh, in grade school, came back. And when I came back from great, our California, my grandpa was sick. That's why the reason we moved up. And uh, unfortunately, when I was 14, he passed. And shortly after he passed, um, I remember my first drink. Um, my uncle, he was riding around in his car, me, my brother, and my cousin. And he pulled up to McDonald's and got four cups of ice. And he poured a uh, Budweiser in each of our cups. And that was my first beer. Actually, I was 12. Sorry about that. I was 12 years old mm. and I had my first beer. I really had to pee after that. So oh. <laughs> we ended up going back to that McDonald's and uh, I got out the car. And just me trying to open the door to McDonald's to go to the bathroom was difficult. And it, it hit me pretty hard and I didn't like the way it made me feel. So that was my first drink and I thought it would be my last. But from there on, when my grandfather passed that, when I was 14, that's when I started uh, smoking marijuana. I tried it for the first time, fell in love with it. And it was me and one of my sister's friends. All of a sudden she became beautiful. We started laughing and rolling around on the ground and just having a good old time. And I said, this is what I want every day. So I started smoking weed every day at the age 14 and um, I didn't want to pay for it. So, you know, I started selling it so I can smoke it and sell it and make some money. Time goes on. One morning I just woke up and I was tired of smoking weed. I was paranoid all the time, getting lazy, didn't want to do anything, had no motivation. So I, I quit smoking weed, but I had to have something to replace that high. I had to have something to, to make me feel good, to make me feel better. Because by that time, when I'd smoke, I just feel normal. And I wasn't feeling normal anymore. So that's when I picked up a drink again. And I started uh, drinking with my brother. He was old enough uh, to know people. And I drink with him, his friends. And then I started drinking with my friends and their parents would buy us alcohol. We started off with 40s. And from 40s, we started off getting little shooters. And I was pretty much the responsible one in my crew. There's about five or six of us, and I always had a job. I had a license. I had uh, my own car, so I'd be the runner. If we were going somewhere, I was driving. And at the age of 17, we're out partying, drinking, you know, doing our thing, and I get my first DUI. Mm. And so I get my DUI. I do three days in uh, a halfway house. And I get out, I get a fine, a slap on the wrist, and um, I'm back to doing what I'm doing. I thought to myself, man, what a what bad luck I had. This had never happened to me again, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I just didn't pay attention to the consequences and just kept on doing the same thing, hanging out with my buddies, drinking, they're smoking, we're just having a good time, partying. Almost exactly the same day. Next year, the following year, a year apart, I get my second DUI. And my second DUI, there's a lot more consequences. They mm. took my license for, I want to say it was a year. Um, the fines were more, and I had to spend two weeks in jail. And I'm 18, so I'm an adult now. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So I said, okay, I got to slow it down a little bit, get out of jail, pay my fines. Um, I have my mom helped me, taking me to work. I don't have a license. Still partying in treatment. Um, when I'm in treatment or when I'm, when I have held accountable for classes or anything like that, I follow the rules. I like to be a student. So I was a, a golden boy when it came to treatment. I always, if I had homework, I'd have my homework done. I, I knew the questions that the counselors would ask me and I could just knock it out the park and um, they would like me. So I graduated from treatment and still kept doing the same thing, still partying, passed all my UAs because I just flushed my system out, drank tons of water because back then you can have a diluted and they wouldn't count it negative. Oh. I've taken niacin and uh, just all these crazy things, you know, and really I was just fooling myself. So after all that was said and done, still running the streets, still drinking. And it went from 40s now to Bacardi, Crown Royal. I mean, you name it. Because once I started drinking, I wanted to try everything. You know, I was trying triple sec and now into the hard liquor. Cavatier, Hennessy, all that. Mm-hmm. And um, so about a year after my second DUI, almost on the exact same date, I got my third DUI. 19 years old, third DUI, felony, license revocation for three years. And um, I think it was six months in, uh, in Palmer prison hefty fine, $10,000 fine. I mean, it was, it was bad. It was really bad. And, um, then I knew it wasn't a coincidence. Plus I had a uh, three years probation with a probation officer. You know, my family was disappointed. I was disappointed. Um, everybody I knew couldn't believe it. Cause when I go around, uh, my friends, uh, parents and family, I was always clean cut. I was always responsible, always had the job, always had the nice car their parents looked up to me and um, I felt like I let everybody down, but really I was just putting on a show. I was putting on a front and um, basically I was caught. So I did my time. I got out on probation and um, right when I got out, I was talking to one of my aunts and she said, Raymond, you know, you need to get a girlfriend, Um, get a girlfriend and you know, she can hold you accountable and you know, you straighten out your life. So I ended up, I got a girlfriend, Mm -hmm. you know, we started talking, she moved in really quick. I want to say within a month or two and we started our own lives together. You know, I wanted to leave all that other stuff in the past. And, um, what I didn't know was her dad was alcoholic as well. So me and her are together and I wanted to get in good with her dad, but I didn't know how. And all he did was drink a lot when he'd get home from work. So I started bringing over 12 packs and 12 packs went to cases and cases went to bottles and a couple years go by and now he's my drinking buddy. He's my best friend because he drinks like I drink. I drink like he drinks, you know, mm-hmm. and still I didn't think I was an alcoholic and I thought all those DUIs were just bad luck. We ended up getting pregnant. I had my son from there. Uh, we ended up buying, buying a house. And, you know, continually drinking, going from job to job to job to job. I'd fired myself so many times, you know, I just quit and wait for the check in the mail. And by the time I get that check, I'll be working at a different job. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't, I wasn't consistent and I didn't have any structure. 
and um, basically I was burning bridges. So when me and uh, my wife, my ex-wife now, um, we had another child. We had my daughter. So now I have two kids and we moved into a house. Um, we have multiple vehicles and, you know, I thought it was the American dream. Go to work, come home, drink. I pay the bills, put the food on the table. You know, this is my castle. All I wanted was a big screen TV and a barbecue grill. That was it. I, I never really was home. I was physically present, but not mentally present. Mm. By the time I got home, cracked a beer, took a shot, and it was on till I went to bed. So through that marriage, we were together nine years. Right before we uh, separated, we had one more child, my second daughter. By that time, I knew it was over. And I was just drinking to oblivion, pretty much drinking to forget, drinking to not accept what was going on and what was happening. Because I knew my ex-wife was going to leave me. And sure enough, she left me. Um, she called the cops on me. And um, the cops kicked me out of my own house. Um, she put a restrainer on, restraining order on me. And I ended up moving into my mother's house. And then... Not even a week later, I was served divorce papers. So after the divorce, we sold our home. We got 50-50 custody, and I was still sober. Still sober, still trying to work my own program and basically bare knuckle it. And I ended up uh, going back to court for my kids. And actually, my, my ex-wife, she took me back to court three times. And eventually I got custody of the kids. So I got custody of the kids. She had visitation. And um, after I got custody of the kids, you know, I thought victory, you know. So I just started partying all over again. And I picked up right where I left off. I bought a fifth, drank half the fifth, woke up the next day, drank the other half, went and bought another bottle. And it was like nothing ever changed. So I have custody of my three kids. Drinking like I was before, and they solely depended on me, and I wasn't there for them, just like in my marriage. You know, I was physically present, but not mentally present. And my mom, she would call, no one to answer. She'd come over, take the kids. I'd wake up in a panic, start calling people. She'd say she, she has them. And one time my mom, she called, no one answered. She did a welfare check, sent the cops over. The cops arrested me for child neglect and um, took the kids, put them in my mom's custody. Their mom was still around, but she has visitations and she was trying to start her own life. So the kids were in me and my mom's life more than they were in hers. So OCS is involved. I start um, showing them that I can sober up because when there's consequences, I can sober up for a short time. So I showed them I can sober up, start make, taking uh, UAs, start looking good, talking to them nice, giving them the answers they want to hear. And um, I started getting home visits. And from the home visits, they started uh, getting to stay overnight. And once I got comfortable with that, I started drinking again. And just like clockwork, like my DUIs, they took the kids again, second time. So I had to start all over. I uh, went to a treatment plan called Father's Journey. That was an awesome, awesome place to be. Um, they wanted me to mentor there. 
And I turned them down because I was selfish and still figuring, trying to figure out when I can drink, where I can drink, and how can I get my kids back. So I was doing whatever I could. And um, I learned a lot through the process, but I didn't learn how to not drink. So um, I guess you can call that being too smart for yourself. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I start getting the kids back again. Um, another overnight uh, stays. And then um, things are going decent. They're going decent. And then the holiday season came around. I started drinking again, sneaking drinking. And eventually that comes out and it just gets worse and worse. And um, my mom does the same thing. She comes and gets the kids. And this time she doesn't call the cops. She just talks straight to my caseworker and OCS. And they come over, talk to me and tell me, you know, we're going to have to put the kids up for uh, for adoption. And right then and there, I thought I was betrayed by my mother. You know, mm-hmm. I love my mother. She gave me birth. You know, I, I couldn't think of anybody else that would do me wrong like that because that's what I really, really thought. But in the end, she was trying to protect the kids and she was trying to help me and I couldn't see that. So I had a huge resentment against my mom now. Mm. So one day I'm um, I'm just drunk from the night before, hungover in a brownout still. And I call my mom and I asked her where the kids are. And she's like, oh, they're at home just hanging out. And for some reason, I get upset and I want to drive over there and pick them up and take them. And that's exactly what I did. I drove over to my mom's house, picked up the kids, and took them. And we were going to go back to my house and watch the movies. Well, we never made it back to my house. I was in a brownout. I remember getting into a fender bender. And instead of me staying, I drove off. And I ran because I knew I was drunk and I knew I'd been drinking. And from that point, that's the last thing I remember. After that, I remember waking up way on across town on the other side of town in a uh, snowbank, you know, the kids in the backseat crying and the police pulling me out the car. And um, that was one of the worst. That was and is the worst days of my life is to remember that. And they pulled me out the car. They take me to jail. I forced myself to stay up because I did not want to go to sleep and wake up not knowing what happened. And um, the last thing I remember there was I asked where the kids were, and they told me that they were with my mother. And I felt some relief, but it, it didn't last long. I just knew my kids were safe. I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know what happened. I didn't know what I did. And um, by the time. I uh, was fully sober in jail. Um, I got my charge. It was another DUI with two two uh, hit and runs, and um, you know, neglect of uh, my three children because they were with me in the back seat, and I thought I was done for. It um, it it was pretty scary. I'm all alone. I I just know that I'm not getting my kids back. I know that. You know, I'm going to do some serious, serious time. I don't know if I hurt somebody. I don't know if, you know, my kids were hurt. All I know is I was in jail, couldn't talk to anybody, didn't want to talk to anybody. And I was just full of shame, guilt, and just hurt. So eventually, a month passes by. 
I finally get the nerve to call up my mom and um, talk to her. And she said the kids were fine. And she asked me what's going on. And I told her, I don't know, really. Um, I talked to the judge and the judge said I was the most dangerous person on the streets at the time. They weren't going to let me out on bail. They weren't going to let me out, period. And I was looking at three years um, for my fourth DUI. And my last DUI prior to that was, I want to believe, 11 years prior. So there was some time in between it, but they were going to stick it to me, especially since uh, my children were involved. So I go to court. They set up another court date. I sit and wait, go back to court. And I remember when the first day I stayed up and the first day that I was in jail, I I just surrendered everything to God. Mm-hmm. I hadn't talked to God like that in a long time. And I, I left him because I was born and raised in the church. My granddad's a pastor on my father's side. Uh, my dad was never around. And um, I don't really know him. I've met him a couple times. But I used to go to church all the time with his dad, my grandpa. And, um, you know, that, that stuck with me. So I I surrendered everything that I had. I, I was done. I was helpless, hopeless, and just out of control. I didn't want what I had anymore. And um, so I remember going to court that second time. And um, while I was in jail, I'd go to church every day, two, twice a week, sometimes three times a week, whenever the pastors would come in, just searching and trying to find something because I didn't like what I had. The crazy part is I didn't want to go to any AA meetings. I just wanted to go to church. I ended up uh, going to court. Uh, This lawyer stood up for me and he talked to the judge, said, Your Honor, you know, Raymond would be a perfect candidate for this program. I didn't know a lawyer, didn't call any lawyer. As far as I knew, I had a public attorney, never met them. They offered me this program called the Wellness Court. And I took the paperwork and I kind of turned it down. And I ended up going back to court that following week and they asked me if I wanted to join it. And I told them, you know, it's too hard. I don't know. You know, I kind of just want to just see what happens. And they're like, well, you know, you're looking at years. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I don't know. I went back and to jail and gave some guy the paperwork they gave me and told him, hey, this would be a good program for you. It sounds like you need it, you know, just stubborn and hardheaded. Mm-hmm. And the third time I went back to court, they finally asked, you fill out the paperwork and all that good stuff? And I said, no, I haven't. I lost it. Can I have another one? And uh, <laughs> that that time... I actually filled it out, turned it in, and within a week I was out of jail on on this program. Wow. Yeah. It uh the program was a year and a half program. I was taking UAs at least three times a week. I had to go to court once a week and see my PO once a week for three months. And then there was phases. And like I said, when I have that structure and when I have consequences, I can perform. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. You know, I was a rock star, all star, whatever you want to call it in that wellness court program. But something clicked while I was in that program. And I should say something clicked my first day in jail. And that was God, you know, mm-hmm. he was doing all this stuff for me. Things that I thought were impossible. 
he was making it happen and he made it possible that I can do that. Now, um, about 15 months sober, I had a meeting with OCS and they gave me a call. They wanted to come to my house. They wanted to check on me. I hadn't been working. I'd just been doing the program. I, right when I got out of jail, I got into AA and I started, uh, I, I got a sponsor and I just started doing what they were doing. So on top of uh, all the classes I had to go to and the PO I had to see and the court I had to go to, I was also doing a meeting almost every day. I wasn't working and I had nothing else to do. Mm. And it's not that I had nothing else to do. I wanted to do it. It became attractive to me. It became fun. Mm. I wanted to see who's still around. I wanted to talk to my friends. I wanted to hear their stories and share my story. I wanted to be heard by others because I had a lot going on. And um, so did other people, you know, and mm. we held each other up. And that was very, very attractive to me. So... I remember um, OCS came and she started talking to me and asked me how I was doing. And the first thing I said, I'm doing pretty good. I have 15 months of sobriety. And she didn't really reply to that or anything. She said, well, you know, you'll never get custody of your kids again. And from that point on, I just broke down, broke down in tears. I could barely hold myself together. and. I thought all this hard work I was doing, I'd be sure to get my kids back. I'd be sure to prove to them that I am, I'm worthy, I'm acceptable. And um, that wasn't the case. They had already made up their mind. I had put my kids in danger multiple times, and they said I was an unfit parent, and my rights will be revoked. So the first thing I did when they left, I called my sponsor, got on the phone started calling people, kept doing what I was doing, going to meetings. I felt like just the world was ripped from under my feet. And um, when, man, I'm getting kind of teary. When, um, when, I, when, I, when I kept on going, when I kept on trudging, my, um, my, my whole thought process changed. I couldn't do it for my kids. I couldn't do it for my mom. I couldn't do it for my job. I couldn't do it for my ex-wife. I couldn't do it for my future wife. I had to do it for me. So I continued to recovery, to stay sober, to not drink, to not do anything for myself, to prove to myself I'm worth it, to prove to myself I'm somebody. I end up, uh, and, and through all this, just prayer after prayer, surrender after surrender, Oh man, it, 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 it was, it was some work. I'm not going to lie. It was work, but it's all worth it because it changed who I am and who I was. And it still changes me today. Mm. I don't stop doing what I, what I started doing because when I stop, I, I start to slide back and I don't want to go backwards. But when that court date came up for them to take away my rights, my parental rights, I was um, standing in the courtroom. I already knew what was going to happen. My mom was there. The kids' lawyer was there. OCS was there. And it was just, I felt all alone. And um, the same lady that told me that I will never have custody or parental rights to my children, she stood up and told the judge, 
Raymond is the perfect father for his kids. Wow. We are not going to take custody. He deserves full rights, full custody, and he's put in the hard work. And he's proven to us that he is the best choice for his children. Wow. So that was a totally different type of breakdown reaction. Those were tears of joy. Mm. And only God can do that. Raymond didn't do none of that. And that just shows, you know, my higher power doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. That day was unbelievable. And that was the best day of my life Mm -hmm. compared to the worst. Yeah. That is so... It brings chills to my spine. Oh, my gosh. What does your recovery look like now? My recovery now is right now at this moment, I go to maybe four to five meetings a week, of course, via Zoom because of the the COVID right now. Mm -hmm. But even before that, I have a home group. I have a sponsor. Um, I have sponsees. Um, Actually, before this, before our program, um, I had two guys call me. I'm working the steps all over again right now. I have five and a half years of sobriety going on six. Mm. I don't think about the future, though. But um, I take my guys through the steps. Um, When someone calls me, I pick up. When someone asks me um, to be of service, I say yes. And um, I, I I love being of service. Even when it's inconvenient, I try to find time. So my recovery is in sponsored, sponsoring other guys. My higher power, without my higher power, I would have no recovery, which my higher power is God. You know, prayer. And I love to give it away. I love to... Uh, talk about my experience and hear others and share experiences. And, you know, it it keeps me sober and it helps other people. Yeah, definitely. What would you say to someone who is currently struggling with alcohol or addiction? It's kind of funny because I just, uh, I have a friend that I've known for about four years. And he's been calling me saying, you know, yeah, I've been through A and I've read the book before and, you know, I'm not just ready, you know, I, I, I know about it and, you know, that's not for me right now. And we talked for about four or five days and I just tell him, you know, all the times that you've gotten in trouble or all the consequences that you had with jail and police and all that, were you drinking? Yeah. Well, I know that, but, you know, well, I've always gotten in trouble and it it wasn't like I was drunk. I said, okay, but every time you got in trouble, you were drinking, right? He said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, are you tired of that? He said, yeah. I said, when you don't drink, do you get in those troubles and arguments and, you know, police and handcuffs? No. Okay. So I, I, I don't tell them what to do or how to do. Sometimes I fish and sometimes I just listen. He eventually came around. He would call me every day, just talk about his stories and his life and all this. And I can, would tell him about mine and, you know, my experiences. And I tell him, you know, there's nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard 
that I haven't done or I haven't seen. And he tried to get me on one. And I said, yep, I've heard that before. You know, it's just kind of funny. Mm -hmm. I just have regular conversations with people because they have to be willing. And once they become willing, I ask them, are you willing to do anything to stay sober? If they say, yeah, then I start leading them to the way that I stay sober or the way I see others stay sober. Because there's no, no one person that can have all the answers. So I let that person decide because I don't want to stop anybody from hitting their bottom because if they don't hit their bottom, they're just going to go right back out. But I don't want them to hit that bottom. That's the hard part. Yeah. What I would say to someone that's struggling and they want to stay sober, I would just say, hey, come do what we do. Come check it out. Mm-hmm. You got nothing to lose. And, um, you know, what else? You know, you, you have nothing to lose. Just try it out, at least. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but, you know. That's that's a good answer. I know, Raymond, a lot of our story is really heavy, and there's a lot of hurt to it. So at the end of the show, I like to do a segment where I ask you if you have something either amazing, crazy, or funny that happened either while you were still out there or uh, currently in your recovery. Just to end on a lighter note. So do you have any amazing, crazy, or funny story you'd like to share? I got some amazing things. Okay. I know one thing that happened that I know is just unexplainable. And um, this was just uh, a few years ago, four years ago almost, when I finally got custody of my kids. And, um, you know, they started living with me again. I was working and I wanted to buy a house. So I made an offer on a house and a whole lot of crazy stuff started happening. The um, owners had to fix a lot of things. I had to come in and fix a lot of things. They thought I was a contractor because um, I wasn't supposed to meet them, but I'm good with my hands and my skills. And um, then one of the uh, owners passed away from old age, I believe. And so the house couldn't close and just a whole bunch of court and chaos and all this other stuff. And in between all that, um, the day we were supposed to sign, that's when he passed away. So it got put off for like another four or five months. So we're already in a, a different year and I get laid off from my job. And about three, four days later, the bank calls me and says, hey, Raymond, um, we just called your job and they said you don't work there anymore. I said, yeah, I just got laid off. They're like, well, you can't buy a house without a job. I said, oh, man. And I put all this money into this house, um, fixing it up, getting it ready. The people are still living in it. We haven't signed the paperwork yet. And I thought it was over. And I had moved in with my mom because I sold my mobile home. I lived in a trailer. <laughs> so I'm living with my mom. And my mom's like, that's okay. You can live with me. <laughs> I no, Mom. I'm 30 <laughs> years old. I don't want to live with you. <laughs> Three kids. <laughs> so... Um, man, the power of prayer. I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I finally, after like month number six, I said, God, if this house is for me, you'll give it to me. And I want to say about four days later, the bank calls me up and said, Raymond, um, we trust you. You can still purchase the house. We're ready to close. Wow. So 
yeah, I ended up closing on a house, me and my kids, with no job, unemployed, and I bought a house. And that following, um, three weeks later, it was Christmas. So me and the kids had been looking around for houses, and I never told them about a house just in case I didn't get it. I didn't want to get their hopes up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so on Christmas Eve, we drove around the neighborhood, and... I said, hey, guys, let's just look for a house right now. So we drove around the neighborhood, and the first house they pointed out was the house that I just bought. No way. And I, I pulled up in the driveway, and uh, the kids were like, yeah, Dad, this house is cool. Um, can we buy it? I said, well, let's go inside. <laughs> and my youngest one was like, Dad, you got the keys? Did you steal this house? I said, no, I didn't <laughs> steal the house. I bought the house. <laughs> And uh, it was Christmas Eve, and I told them Merry Christmas. So they got to come in, see the house, run around, pick up their, uh, pick pick the rooms out. And um, from there, you know, we've been living here almost four and a half years now, going wow. on five years. That yeah. is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. That's that's God working, working in our lives. Wow. Amazing. Yep. I do have a job now, by the way. Oh, that. Okay. <laughs> good. That's good. All right. Well, Raymond, thank you so much for being my guest. And I really appreciate you sharing your story with the world. And I know your story will bring hope to someone that is still struggling. So thank you very, very much. You are very welcome. And amen. If you're a person in recovery who would like to share their journey or know a person in recovery, get a hold of me at anonymous eskimo podcast at gmail.com. That's anonymous eskimo podcast, all one word at gmail.com. So we can maybe bring hope to someone still struggling. If you'd like to help get the word out, share the link, and whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or iHeartRadio. Please share this with your friends. Follow, subscribe, rate this podcast, and write a review. Listen next week when I have another strong person who is walking with us on this recovery journey. Bira, maksakten.